the HD Movie Podcast may contain mature content, strong language and spoilers. Hello and welcome to episode 78 of the HD Movie Podcast. I'm Darren Gaskell. And I'm Hayley Alice Roberts. And in this week's episode, we start on our themed strand of Halloween episodes, in which we're going to be talking about the weird and wonderful world of witches. I'm so excited for this. And to kick things off, we are going to be taking a magical look at 1987's The Witches of Eastwick. Firstly, thanks ever so much to the multi-talented Mitch Bain for providing us with our spooky new Halloween theme music to usher in a short series of films that we're going to be covering all about witches, starting off with 1987's The Witches of Eastwick, which was directed by George Miller. It stars Jack Nicholson, Susan Sarandon, Cher and Michelle Pfeiffer. Incredible cast to start off with. So before we get into what we thought of the movie, we're going to read out a synopsis for you. This one is, of course, from IMDb, and it's written by Colin Tinto. Alex, Jane and Suki are three bored New England women left to live without their husbands. They innocently conjure up a mystery man who could satisfy all their desires. A new man moves into the town, and he fits the bill perfectly. Daryl Van Horn is a filthy rich and wild-eyed. And within days, the three women have all discovered almighty power within themselves. Will good triumph over evil, or will Daryl continue to have his evil way with his witches? Pretty good synopsis. That doesn't really give an awful lot away. We'll probably be giving more away as we go along. That's just the nature of this podcast. Jack Nicholson obviously was top line in this movie because he'd been in various hits and was a very name actor even at this time in 1987. It follows the rule about setting everything up in the first 20 minutes because pretty much after you get the introductions of Susan Sarandon, Cher and Michelle Pfeiffer's characters, after exactly 20 minutes, Jack Nicholson turns up. The film doesn't hang about, does it? It's got a good pacing to it, even though it is two hours. Um, It gets into the story almost right away. 
I think this is a very empowering film. I mean, I think this is going to be a trend throughout all our witch content anyway, this Halloween season, because we are focusing on female power, which is very cool to talk about. And this one in particular, it's got these three women and they have all been seduced by the same the same guy, but they don't really turn on each other like you'd expect them to. They actually more come together as a trio in order to battle him in the end. So I think that's quite good. This cast is amazing. So we've got Cher, we've got Susan Sarandon and Michelle Pfeiffer. And I couldn't even think of a better cast. Um, they all work so well together. And then you get this genuine feel that they are good friends. And um, even though they're also different, they've all got different personalities um, and different quirks about them. So yeah, the writing is really good. The characters are really well fleshed out. It's quite a mesmerizing film. You're just drawn to it and can't wait to see um, how it's going to unfold. In addition to this, you also get other brilliant actors in there. You get uh, Richard Jenkins in an earlier role of his, but you also get Veronica Cartwright, who is absolutely superb as Felicia, who is the... Well, she starts off being the voice of reason and the voice of morality in the town, but becomes increasingly unhinged as the first half of the movie goes on. She's clearly having a pretty good time playing this role, even though Felicia does go through the ringer a bit. And, spoiler alert for people who haven't seen it, she comes to a fairly grisly off-screen end about an hour into it. So you think that she might be the person that's set up to be the antagonist of the main three women, but she isn't. And when she realises that she's possibly the one that can go and save them, she gets bumped off, which puts a slightly different spin on the second half of the movie. So the three women have to come together to fight off the increasingly sexist and boorish behaviour of Jack Nicholson's character. He starts off as this almost utopian vision of a guy who's very understanding, very caring, listens to them. But as the movie wears on, he starts to show his true colours. It's a bit of a poke at men. It's, it's not... I mean, I guess some people will think it's man-bashing. It isn't. It's all done in a reasonably light-hearted way. And it does poke fun at certain male stereotypes. But I think you'd have to be a fairly insecure bloke to watch this and think that it was having a proper go at you. Yeah, and going back to Veronica Cartwright's character, what's very interesting is when we talk about her grisly demise, if you don't like kind of gross-out visuals, um, it may be a bit off-putting, especially involving food. To my knowledge, there was actually more to this scene. They had created a life-size animatronic for her that would basically just thrash about, so I think it was a bit like the Uncanny Valley on set for the, for the filmmakers. And she would basically, this, this animatronic, it would thrash back convulsively and spew out massive amounts of vomit on cue. And then when the test audiences saw these scenes, they were quite disturbed by them. So it was actually edited to what you get today. I did try and have a look to see if I could find any um, extended cut or anything, but unfortunately I've been unsuccessful. You do see a tiny bit of the animatronic because there's some fairly spectacular projectile vomiting and you get a brief glimpse of what the animatronic is but you're right it's very brief and it's probably enough because the thought of what's going on is unpleasant enough anyway 
without seeing the spewing up and the thrashing around. It does just enough. In fact, in some ways it's more effective because you kind of don't see it coming. You don't think her character is going to die after an hour. And the fact that she does, and the fact that it's done in such a surprising and brutal way, and then it goes back to her husband reading a book. It's a weird sequence. The thing about this movie is it crosses a lot of genres. It's a comedy, it's a drama, it's a satire, it's got elements of horror in it, it's got fantasy. So it does cross a number of boundaries. So if you're going into this movie looking for one particular thing, it's going to be wrong-footing you quite a lot because it's funny one moment, it's unnerving one moment, it's quite dramatic in another, it goes off on flights of fantasy the next. I like the fact that it blends a load of genres, but I can see some people thinking that it hops between so many things that it doesn't possibly know what it's going for. But I think it actually works as a mixture of all genres. Definitely. No, I'm, I'm with you there. And I really like that about it as well, because you never know what to expect next. There's just so many moments in this where you think it's going one way and it goes completely in, the, in a different direction. But I think the core of this film is the performances. Um, and Jack Nicholson, as you say, he's fantastic. He is an incredible actor. And I think he is doing a bit of his uh, shining stick in this to a point because he's doing that really unhinged acting, but it, it works. I think he's an interesting choice for the part because you think when they conjure up this guy that you're going to get somebody really conventionally attractive, a sort of like Brad Pitt, George Clooney-esque type character. But you don't, you just get this, you know, regular looking guy who's full of this charm. And that's what makes it really interesting because seeing how the three women are drawn to him specifically. Yeah, that is an interesting bit of casting because like you say, they could have just gone for somebody who's stunning to look at and then grafted on this intelligent character. But they're going for somebody who's kind of a normal looking guy who happens to be charismatic and attractive in certain different ways. And it's interesting to see how he channels the three of them in many different ways and knows what their hopes and dreams are and uses those to seduce them. It's not a particularly explicit film. The sex is very much hinted at. The language is fairly explicit, but it's done with the right amount of taste. It's, it's not a crude movie. It's an adult movie, certainly. It's an 18 certificate in the UK, if you buy it or rent it. It's the kind of movie that we don't see an awful lot of anymore. It's a movie made for adults, by adults, and doesn't shy away from portraying adult themes. And it's not pandering to the lowest common denominator. It's like, well, we have to get some action in here. Or we have to get an explosion, or we have to get somebody dying really horribly. I mean, you do get somebody dying really horribly, but but not in the way that you think. And it's the fact that it's relying on performances and dialogue instead of big set pieces. It's the sort of thing that you might get that in indie movies now, but you certainly don't get it in big studio stuff. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. It is very much character-driven, and I think that's what's so compelling about it going back to it being that 18 certificate for me it's that very much old school 18 certificate like in the 80s and 90s I don't think it would be rated 18 now per se possibly a 15 I think if they were they were going to um recertify it but 
Yeah, saying that. And then going back to the discussion on the character of Daryl Van Horn, one of the original choices for the part was Bill Murray. So again, that's interesting. I could see him playing that part quite well because he has the charisma and also um, he has the comic timing as well. So he would equally work just as well. Been a different performance, but I think that I could definitely envision him in that role. Yeah, weirdly, I don't think um, Bill Murray and Jack Nicholson are far off each other in terms of persona. I think Jack Nicholson leans into the lunacy a little bit more. And I think Bill Murray is more of a comic madman. But I think that would have worked with Bill Murray there because, again, he's a sort of a regular looking guy that happens to be very funny and charismatic. And you could see why these three women would fall for him. I don't think it would have been too much difference with Bill Murray in there. I mean, we have got Jack Nicholson, who is quite clearly great. His performance is fantastic. And he oscillates between quite reasonable and completely bonkers. And he does it really well. And he gets full reign to go completely batshit at the end. But again, he's not allowed to overshadow the movie. The movie is about female friendship and empowerment. And it's about how these three women support each other through various different events. When the townsfolk are banding against them, they come together. When they're trying to get rid of Daryl come the final act, they have to band together again. And as you said earlier on, in other movies, they would have just been sniping at each other all the time. And the film would have been taking its drama from the fact that they were falling out and they were arguing all the time. And it would have been from that sort of dialogue. In this when they have a disagreement, it's over with very quickly and they're back to being friends, which is kind of refreshing. So it has this view of female friendship that a lot of movies don't have, and it relies on the fact that they're very warm towards each other rather than the fact that they're just trying to be bitchy all the time, which you get in an awful lot of movies because it makes for fairly, well, easy but fairly lazy drama at the same time. In this case, you like all of the characters and you enjoy the fact that they're on screen together and you, you enjoy the fact that they're enjoying each other's company as well. So even when there's not a huge amount going on in the movie, it's nice to spend time with these people. Definitely. So it was really great for me to revisit this film because it's been about 20 years since I initially saw it. It was on Channel 5, I believe, when I first watched it and the plot was intriguing to me. On a rewatch. What I find quite fascinating is I thought the romance between Jack Nicholson and Cher was made more of than it actually is. So whether I built that up in my head, I don't know. But I think equally he has as many romance elements with all three women in it rather than just um, Cher's character. So I don't know where I got that from exactly. But for some reason, I thought that there was more to it and, and that um, she was his like favourite. But again... Very strange. It's quite interesting when you haven't seen something for such a long time and you get a different perspective. Cher is the first one that Jack Nicholson goes after, so I guess that's the start of the events. And I guess that the pursuit of her is kind of like the will-they-won't-they at the start. So I think it's built up that way. I think, if anything, the seduction of Susan Sarandon's character is more because you get that very grand sequence where they're playing music together and her um, cello starts smoking and then catches fire. So that's a kind of a fantastical element. I think the one that it's focused least upon is Michelle Pfeiffer's character because she's got a much different view of life and romance. She's had six kids. 
and she's unfazed by everything. So I think they push that to the back a little bit because she isn't looking for the same things as either Cher or Susan Sarandon's character. She's possibly the slightly more interesting character because you know slightly less about her and she's a little more hysteric than the other two. And that's not just because I'm a massive fan of Michelle Pfeiffer and I could spend several hours on this podcast just talking about how great Michelle Pfeiffer is. But I think Cher and Susan Sarandon's characters, even though they've got their own quirks, they're more conventional movie characters. Whereas Suki, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, she's kind of a little bit... She's kooky, but not in that movie kooky sort of way. And I think she's the most interesting character because she doesn't buy into it quite as much. Yeah, I know what you mean there. And they have created a musical version of The Witches of Eastwick, and I think that they really do amplify the kookiness and the quirkiness of the Michelle Pfeiffer character in that more. Um, so I think it's more downplayed in, in the movie, but um, I think they've really taken that up a notch for the show, which is quite interesting. Yeah, I haven't seen the musical, but I think it'd be quite interesting to see what they've done with it, how they've adapted it. I think it fits a musical because the structure of the movie, in some ways, it, it lends itself almost to have musical numbers breaking in every so often, even though they don't. I mean, you get Susan Sarandon, who is this music teacher, and you get the band playing and things like that. But I think the way that the story progresses, you could slot songs in there every so often, and I don't think it would disrupt the pace of the movie too much. As it is, it's fine as a piece of drama and a piece of comedy and a piece of horror. I mean, if you're a horror movie fan, the horror's reasonably mild, by comparison to some of the other stuff you could get. But there is horror in there. It's got an eye for the weird and the wacky and the slightly creepy. George Miller, who directed it, had come off the Mad Max trilogy. So he knew how to portray terror on screen. Have you seen Mad Max 2? Yes, yeah, an action movie. But there's a lot of Mad Max 2 where you just think, this is also kind of a horror movie as well. He's an interesting director, George Miller. He's got a great filmography. It seemed like a bit of a left turn after doing Mad Max 3 to go to Witches of Eastwick, but it's not its not that far a trip across from one to the other. That's really interesting. And going back to the musical adaptation, as part of my research for this podcast, I did actually find a documentary called Dance with the Devil, which was all about the West End production in 2000 of adapting Witches of Eastwick, so that's um, pretty interesting to watch if you if you like that sort of thing, and it's available to watch on YouTube, so um, worth checking out, and I believe they do really like grand things in it, like get the witches on harnesses, and they like fly around the auditorium, so I think it would be quite a spectacle to see on stage, so I'm definitely going to look out for it, because hopefully it will either maybe tour the UK again one day, or go back to the West End, we can hope, because there was a concert version recently. Right, okay, I mean, yeah, it's I mean, lots of things do get musical adaptations these days, and some of them probably don't deserve them, and some of them are probably just productions that have had the numbers grafted into a fairly basic story. I think this one lends itself slightly more to a musical adaptation than some movies. And it's got musical sequences. Even though they're not singing, there are extended montages where you've got things like Ness and Dorma playing in the background, and there's the three women in Jack Nicholson's massive mansion and they're in a room that's just full of pink balloons and everybody's having a great time and you get this operatic sequence in there. 
So it's got musicality about it, this movie. It just doesn't have direct songs. You don't get, like, say, Cher breaking into song, which you'd kind of expect if it was Cher, because she breaks into song quite a lot. Cher holds her own against Susan Sarandon and Michelle Pfeiffer. I don't think there's a weak link in the performances. I think everybody's got something to bring to this movie. And the fact that they take a lot of the emphasis away from Jack Nicholson for quite a lot of the movie, it's quite a brave decision because the temptation would have been, oh, we've got Jack Nicholson, let's just shove him in front of the camera and make him do something wacky or crazy or get him to rant for ages and ages and ages. But the fact that he's kept back for quite a lot of the movie and only is allowed to give full vent to his feelings when the plot requires it, it's a brave decision on one hand, but it also means that the bits that do have Jack Nicholson in are that much more impactful. So when he does show up, you're genuinely thinking, what the hell is he going to do next? Which is good. Also, you've got um, Carol Striken, who is a Dutch actor, who was in Twin Peaks and other things, and he's Fidel, who is Daryl Van Horn's butler. Completely wordless performance, but he's great in it. And he also played Lurch in the Adams Family movies as well, so it's a nice connection. The Witches of Eastwick actually was sourced from a novel um, written in 1984 by John Updike. And interestingly, I discovered that the film did adapt the basic premise of the book, but there are some moments in the book that have been completely left out. And I think they sound pretty dark. So I'm kind of glad the film didn't go down this route, but it would have been interesting if it had taken this risk. So... According to Wikipedia, in the novel, Daryl is more devil-like, less of an enabler and more of a selfish, perverse predator and architect of mayhem. There's also a key plot in the book where Daryl unexpectedly marries a young, innocent girl named Jenny and the jealous three witches magically cause her to die of cancer. So that is uh, pretty horrific. So, And I I think that would have made the film really mean-spirited. And I think we would have lost empathy for the three core characters if they'd included that. And then the ending is different. None of the witches get pregnant at the end. And apparently Daryl flees town with Jenny's younger brother, Chris, apparently his lover. So again, very interesting direction the book takes compared to the movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can see why they didn't include some of that in the film, because it is generally a light-hearted... Well, I won't call it a romp, but it's not super dark. And things like the cancer subplot, you're right, that would have just meant that you had no sympathy for the main characters at all, and you're supposed to be on their side. And having them kill off somebody, yes... It's arguable that they kill off Felicia, but they don't realise what they're doing. They don't realise the influence that they have. And they're not the ones who kill Felicia. It's somebody else. But it's the coalescence of all these elements that come together. And then Felicia is the victim of all of that. But if they're directly causing somebody to die of cancer, that is brutal and very, very dark. I quite like the idea of Daryl running off with a guy at the end. Because... There's a hint in the movie that Daryl Van Horn is a sexual creature and it doesn't really seem to matter who he's being sexual towards. I mean, it's women in the movie, but it could be guys. Again, though, that doesn't really fit the tone of where the film's going. 
So I can appreciate that they took the slightly more controversial elements of the book and decided to ignore them for the purpose of the movie because at the end of the day, it is entertainment, this. It's slightly weird, it's slightly wacky, but it's a Warner Brothers movie, so there's a limit to how far they're going to push the envelope. Even in a movie that's aimed at adults, there is certainly lines which they will not cross, and I think giving somebody cancer is one of them. Yeah, it's, it is definitely too far. And I think because the film had issues when it was screened to test audiences and they had to go back and rework it, I don't think any of those plots would have gone down well, particularly in 1987. But it would be interesting if they were to revisit it at some point and maybe feature three male witches instead. That could be an interesting take and still have the Daryl Van Horn character as he is so we could get a different perspective on it. Yeah, we're saying that, you know, it's a classic thing about sort of a guy seducing women, but why shouldn't it be about a guy seducing guys? We've moved on from the fairly staid attitudes of the 80s, because as much as people say the 80s were kind of an excessive decade, it was only excessive in certain ways. It was still very closeted in terms of the portrayal of LGBT characters in that decade. So... It would be interesting to get a same-sex version of uh, The Witches of Eastwick. I'm not sure it would come to pass, and I'm sure that Warner Brothers wouldn't want to touch it with a barge pole, but it's an interesting idea. It also seems to take a... I mean, it doesn't take a swipe at religion, but there is an undercurrent of the fact that religion is kind of both holding the town together, but also making them blind to everything that's going on. And there is quite an amusing point towards the end where Daryl is caught in a storm and ends up getting pretty much blown into church and then proceeds to cause complete havoc at this church service by vomiting copiously around the congregation and then giving them this rant about whether women are a mistake or did God do it to us on purpose. I mean, it's not outrageous, I think... It's pushing things ever so slightly. I don't think that you would be offended by anything that goes on in this movie because it's kind of winking at the audience at the same time as well. It's not meant to be taken all that seriously, even though it's making salient points about the behaviour of men or specific types of men. I've got to say, not all men, haven't I? Because if I say that men behave like this, you'll get people saying, well, I don't behave like that. It's like, well... We're just talking about specific types of blokes here. It's making fairly obvious points, but it's making them in a fun way and it's not bashing you over the head with what it needs to say. It's got great performances. It's got weird throwaway details as well. Just after Susan Sarandon's character and Jack Nicholson's character have had sex, the next sequence... Jack Nicholson is wandering around and he's got scratches on the side of his face. Now, it's clear where the scratches have come from, but at the same time, they're not mentioned. They're just there. And he goes through this entire sequence with these scratches down the side of his face. And I think that's brilliant because it's not in any way drawn attention to. It's just there. Yeah, it's quite clever how they do that, for sure, because it's not just spoon feeding you everything. It's just leaving more to the imagination, which is always good. 
and again the premise is very much connected to the like salem witch trials and that you know it's basically a modern version of that and how um, people feared that witchcraft was going on in their their small sort of suburban town so i think it's got those kind of generic elements in there so my final fact actually about casting for this film is that angelica houston auditioned for the role of alex which is Cher's part but obviously she lost out to Cher, and i think she would have been a very interesting choice but of course she goes on to play one of the most iconic witches in film history in the 1990 adaptation of roald dahl's the witches so it would have been interesting to see her in this role as well, I, I would say, just to compare how different a portrayal of a witch would be in Witches of Eastwick compared to the witches. I think Angelica Houston brings a slightly more stately presence than Cher does. I think Cher works because she's this kind of arty type to start with, and her characters are very arty type as well, and she's very laid back and down to earth, and Cher projects that. So I think... Whereas Angelica Houston would have been pretty good, I think they've got it bang on with Cher as casting goes. Yeah, as I say, like I love the cast in this. I think they all work so well together. So it's definitely the reason this movie is so memorable because of who's in it and the performances. So I, I just don't think it could be done any better than how it is. Yeah, absolutely. I'd not seen this one for maybe three or four years, but having watched it again, I really did enjoy it on another repeat watch. It's the sort of movie that I can leave for a few years and then come back to and then think, oh, this is why I really loved it all those previous times. And I don't think my affection for the movie has dimmed. I think the performances, as we've said many times, are still great. The story is fun, the pacing's pretty good, and it's just a fun time. You'd think that a two-hour movie that's kind of a feminist slant on witchcraft and toxic male behaviour, you'd think two hours of that might be a bit grating, but it's not, because it's done with a light touch, it's having a laugh, at quite a few things and quite a few people's expenses. It's got great detail about how small town life works. And at the end of the day, it's a really cool piece of entertainment, the like of which we don't really get now in the age of big superhero movies or big event movies. We don't really get ensemble pieces with great character actors. And when we do, they tend to be these kind of um, portmanteau things like, you know, Mother's Day and New Year's Eve. So you're getting so many people crammed in and not enough for them to do. This one, we've got great actors, we've got a reasonably small cast, but the main characters are all great performers and you definitely won't get bored over the two hours, regardless of the fact that if you're going in thinking it's a, an all-out horror movie, it isn't. It's a mixture of various different genres, which all work well. And at the end, you kind of get a warm glow, even though the subject matter is slightly weird. And you get a reasonably happy ending and you get a nice little moment at the end where you think Daryl might be coming back, but the witches are wise to his methods and put a stop to it. 
Yeah, I definitely enjoy the ending. I think it's a nice little wink to the audience that he could come back, but uh, reassuring us at the same time that they're not going to let him get away with anything. Yeah, as you say, this film, it's not boring by any means. It keeps you entertained and engaged throughout. And I had such a good time revisiting it. As I said, I haven't gotten back to it for about 20 years. Don't ask me why. It's criminal of me. But I'm really glad that I've had the chance to watch it again as an adult as well. Probably before things would have just gone over my head. Yeah. <laughs> so the legacy of the movie... There was a TV movie adaptation in 2002, which seemed to start a very young Chris Evans, as in Captain America, which would be quite interesting. And then there was a TV series of it in uh, 2009, just titled Eastwick. I've not seen that, so I'm not really sure how that um, played out and whether it was well received at the time. I don't know. And then, of course, as I said, there is the musical version, which is the version that I'm very keen to see. So hopefully I'll get the opportunity to one day. But I do believe there is the original Australian production um, on YouTube. So maybe I'll have to check that out if I don't get a chance to see it in the theatre anytime soon. Yeah, I haven't seen the Eastwick TV series. It does have Veronica Cartwright in it playing a different character and the other characters are different as well. So... It might be something that I will visit, but considering it was very short-lived, this TV series, then I don't think I'm going to fall over myself getting to see it. But it might be an interesting watch when I've got something to while away the hours when I have a bit of spare time. I might give it a whirl. Having said that, do I want to have The Witches of Eastwick potentially tarnished by a TV version? I'm not entirely sure. I'm still a big fan of this movie and I'm going to guess that IMDb are reasonably big fans of this movie. I'm hoping they are. So they've given it a 6.5 out of 10. I would have probably gone more for a 7.5 personally. And then on Rotten Tomatoes, there's a 66% tomato meter and 62% audience score. I mean, I think that any sort of follow-up adaptation, especially with a different cast, it's a tough act to follow. So I don't know, again, if we would enjoy the TV series, but as a um, piece of content, it would be interesting to sort of compare and contrast them and just see how they've adapted a new version of it, brought it to the modern day, maybe. So, yeah, I would give it 7.5 out of 10 because it is a very strong movie. It's enjoyable. I don't have anything negative, really, to say about it. Oh. Only that it didn't really make me feel Halloween-y. And I know that's a very, um, not like the best sort of comment to make, considering this is our Halloween episode. But I think on looking back, it's a movie you can watch any time of year, but it doesn't necessarily fit with the atmosphere of Halloween. I probably felt slightly more Halloween-y about it because it does have the witchy side of it. It doesn't come into play a huge amount, but there's enough spooky goings-on, even if they are very light-hearted spooky goings-on. I think we'll be doing stuff that's much more Halloween-y than this, but it has witches, it has a small town setting, it has all the laughs you'll want, and it's got Michelle Pfeiffer, so obviously any score I give this movie will be massively tainted by the fact that it's got Michelle Pfeiffer in it, so I'll just leave it at the fact that I really do enjoy this movie, regardless of whether it's got Michelle Pfeiffer in it or not. However, the fact that she is in it does make it much easier for me to like. But uh, I will leave you with the ethos of the movie in a nutshell. 
in which Jack Nicholson says the line, and I apologise for the foul language, men are such cocksuckers, aren't they? <laughs> and of course, this movie did lay the groundwork for what's to come, specifically content that we are going to be getting into later in our little Halloween mini-series. This influenced the uh, female-led witchcraft TV shows and films such as Charmed and The Craft. I do wish we could chat longer. And that's it for episode 78 of the HD Movie Podcast. As always, thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode and would like to keep up to date with all our content, you can follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at HD Movie Podcast. Our descent into the witchy world continues in episode 79. We have got another spooky movie coming your way. What's it going to be, Hayley? It's an iconic witchcraft movie, probably one of the most iconic of all. It's 1996's The Craft, and I'm very, very excited to be finally talking about this movie for the podcast. And I'll leave that thought there because otherwise I'll just start talking about it now and we're still on which is a Eastwick episode, so I can't do that. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, yeah, we have been threatening to do the craft for a very, very long time on this podcast, and we're finally getting around to it. So it should be a good discussion, and I can't wait to cover it either. So until then, stay safe, everybody, and we'll see you soon. The HD Movie Podcast is presented by Haley Alice Roberts and Darren Gaskell. Its music is written and performed by Mitch Bay. You can find the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Samsung Podcasts, Amazon Music, Podchaser, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Player FM, Listen Notes and Podbean.